Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we see how someone flips the record of their life from disbelief to belief in God. Each podcast, we listen to someone who has once been an atheist, but who unexpectedly became a Christian. From my research, it's often the case that people reject Christianity as something that is intellectually shallow, ritualistic, and irrelevant to their lives. It seems out of step with culture. Walking away from it is quite easy. Embracing another worldview seems equally easy, relieving even, attractive. What was lost and what was found didn't require much thought. It just seemed a matter of unchecking or unticking the God box. Many people live for years moving in the opposite direction of God, venturing towards any other option except Jesus. They are completely uninterested in Christianity. It's not even up for consideration. That is, until they, against all odds, become open. This is Ashley's story. I hope you'll join me to hear her tell it to find out what it was that changed her mind after years of moving in the opposite direction towards atheism. To reconsider what she once thought unthinkable belief in Jesus. I also hope you'll stick around to the end, too, to hear Ashley's advice to skeptics and doubters on considering Jesus, God, and Christianity, and advice to Christians on how best to engage with those who are doubting or searching for something more, something real and true in their lives. If you're enjoying these stories on Side B, I hope you'll subscribe and rate this podcast so that others can find it more easily. Now, let's meet Ashley. Welcome to the Side B Podcast, Ashley. It's so great to have you. Thank you. I'm so very glad to be here. Uh, As we're getting started, before you tell your story, I would love to know, and I would love the listeners to know a bit about you. There's, it seems like you have a lot going on in your life and the lo- the things that you love and the things that you love to do. And I'd love to hear about that now. Okay, sure. Um, I'm an artist and a writer. I live with my husband and two children, a boy and a girl in a little town near the Flint Hills of Kansas. Um, and I homeschool my two children. Uh, And my husband works on a wind farm (laughs) and uh, we have chickens. Um, That's something I really enjoy. And um, I have a website displaying my art and a blog on it as well at www.ashleylandy.com. Yeah. And that's what I do. Well, it sounds like a, a really intriguing, almost idyllic place to live these days outside of the city in the rural country. Um, Wow, living somewhat of a simple existence, it sounds like, but very wonderful in a way um, that you have that space <laughs> and chickens. Um, that That's a very interesting. So I presume that you, you collect eggs and you probably grow a lot of vegetables and do all that kind of thing uh, with regard to sustainability and uh, living. Uh, that's Terrific. Um, I have that's, that's actually gardening, but but the chickens we uh, do love the chickens. I have yet to master gardening, <laughs> but someday, someday. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I tried my hand a little bit at, at gardening, but uh, just a few flowers here and there. Yeah. So Ashley, as we're getting to know you and your story, let's start back at the beginning. Tell me about where you grew up. Did you grow up in Kansas? Is that where your home is? And what was that like? Your family, your friends, your community? Was God anywhere in the picture? Yes. Um, so I actually grew up in a suburb of Kansas City on the Missouri side. <laughs> um, us Missourians are very emphatic about that. The bulk of Kansas City is actually on the Missouri side. And I grew up in a suburb called Blue Springs um, that was about 20 miles from the city. Um, I I grew up kind of in a unique situation. Uh, we, we were in a suburb and we were in the city limits, but my dad... Um, had he was from Southern California and he wanted he met my mom who lived in the Midwest and decided to move back here with her because he could own land whereas in Southern California near the coast that's an impossibility unless you're a millionaire um, so th he bought the land and was actually grandfathered in to the um, animal ordinance so we had all kinds of animals uh, we had horses and we had a cow at one point we had a llama chickens and ducks and um, kind of tucked back in the woods, um, even though we were in a suburb. So my childhood was wonderful in many ways. Um, I had a sister who was, um, she was about two and a half years older than me. She passed away in 2017, um, but I grew up with her. Um, and faith was, um, it was kind of a peripheral part of our lives in that season. We went to church usually two or three times a month, we'd go to church on Sundays. And I remember going to vacation Bible school and Sunday school. And um, my dad was very busy with his business. He was a commercial interior designer and he, he built his own business, had a business in Kansas City. Uh, so he commuted every day. He was very busy with that, very consumed with that. And he was also <laughs> very strong in his political identity. And so the church we went to was a Methodist church, which was the tradition that my mother had grown up in. But for my dad, the Methodist church was too, quote unquote, liberal. And so he kind of phased in and out of going to church. Um, and a faith uh, Bible reading was not necessarily a big part of our lives. Um, faith just seemed like something that we participated in on Sundays. And I, I don't say that to criticize my parents. They were, they were doing the best they could. They both grew up in highly dysfunctional families. Um, I do remember having conversations with my dad about infinity and the nature of God in a very abstract way. And I just remember trying to contemplate infinity. And it was, it was so mystifying to me that I just could not wrap my head around the idea of infinity. But I remember Jesus was just kind of represented in my mind as a kind of a gentle, passive figure. And I know I must have heard the gospel at some point. I remember singing Jesus Loves You in Sunday school, but somehow it just, it never, it never really sunk in. Um, and around the time I was 13 or 14, my sister started having a lot of issues, just getting into trouble at school and and with the police here and there. And so that was a huge crisis for our family and church attendance kind of dropped off at that point. My sister had started refusing to go and my dad didn't go very much. So I thought like, well, why should I go? Why should I have to go? Because it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't seem relevant to my life. It didn't seem sus substantive. And, and around that time I was probably, 
I don't know, 14, I remember um, going to a church, very reluctantly going to church camp with one of my best friends. And I just realized at that church camp, I, I don't believe any of this. Um, and mm-hmm. I knew, sorry, I'm kind of just <laughs> jumping into the story. out of my, No, but that's I, great. Yeah. Um, and I, and so that, that was my, that was my family background. So there was some foundation, but it just didn't, it's, I don't know, it didn't sink in or it didn't seem relevant to my life. Um, yeah. So it wasn't really as a child at least. And, uh, there wasn't uh, a sense in which you, you took hold of that in a personal way. It wasn't like you, you had belief or felt belief. It was just, something, some ritual that you did, some activity on Sunday, but it's something you never really truly believed. Right, right, exactly. So you you wouldn't have considered yourself really a Christian at any point in your life, really, prior, at, at least in your preteen days before you stopped going. No, no, I wouldn't have. I, I just took, I did um, I think I took the existence of God as kind of a given. And I remember I had a half brother. I still have, I have a half brother who's, um, quite a bit older than me. He is 15 years older than me. And so I didn't grow up with him really, but we would see him, you know, fairly often, at least once or twice a year. And I remember when I was probably, oh, nine or 10 and we were riding with him, we were visiting him in California and my sister and I were riding with him in his car and, uh, this song came on the radio called Dear God by a band called a British pop band called Ecstasy. And the lyrics were all about, dear God, um, I can't believe in you. I won't believe in you. And, and it was just describing this man's, all his grievances against God and how he would not believe in him. And, he, and I just remember being scandalized thinking, I didn't know people were allowed to not believe in God. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. On one hand, I didn't. I, I wouldn't say I had any kind of personal encounter with Jesus Christ. I'm always a little envious of people who say that they had moments in their childhood where they felt God's presence really strongly because I don't remember ever having that. Yet at the same time, I feel like there was this um, just assumption that, well, you have to believe in God because that's just what that's what you mm-hmm. do. That's what everyone does, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, so that, that moment in the car when you were 9 or 10, that actually – open the door to the possibility that perhaps that isn't uh, an assumption for everyone and that, that it gave you the freedom, I suppose, when you were at that church camp to say, no, I really don't believe any of this. Yes. And that, that possibility, possibility felt dangerous, certainly, but it also was exotic and a little enticing. And um, yeah. And then at that church camp, I just realized, and I remember I, I, was bold enough at that point, I guess, to announce my atheism. We were having this little um, gathering around a campfire and sitting on those benches that are made of half of a log. And and I said, I just didn't believe. And um, there was just dead silence. And one of the counselors took me aside afterward and encouraged me to read the work of C.S. Lewis. And he said, I should start with the Chronicles of Narnia. And, you know, I kind of just said, oh, okay, yeah, I'll look into that. I didn't at the time, but I remember thinking, being really confused because I remember watching a cartoon version, an animated version of the Chronicles of Narnia when I was a child, 
but I literally had no idea in, until I was an adult, actually, that Jesus or that Aslan was supposed to represent Jesus. It just went completely over my head. And so that really made me stop and think, oh, like, and even at that point, I don't think, I don't think I realized until it was an, I was an adult. So, so yeah, I did have some influences like that, but I don't know. I don't know. They just never, never took hold. Mm. It just intuitively seemed not worthy of belief. That is, it's mm. not as if you went on this intellectual journey and said, oh, you know, Christianity isn't worth believing. It was just like, it just didn't feel like something that was worth believing in. Was it, do you think more intellectual at that time? I mean, I know you were, you were preteen or you were an early teenager, 13 and 14, but at that time, was it just, man, this just doesn't, you know, it just seems like what, what did you think Christianity was if it wasn't true? You know, I, I, I look back now and I can see that I was just out of hand dismissive of it. And also around that time I started, I've always loved to read and around that time, I started reading um, some very <laughs> adult things that were very um, like existentialist, nihilistic, uh, just about the absurdity of life. Like I read the the plague and the stranger by Albert Camus, and uh, one of my favorite books around that time was Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller, which is kind of all about the absurdity of war and and by extension the absurdity of life and the futility of life. And I started reading the beat poets like Allen Ginsberg and Gregory Corso was someone I was really into. So I was, I was introducing myself, I guess, to this, uh, these really cerebral writers. And I was attracted to that, that intellectual, you know, intellectualism. I was very attracted to that. And I had never been introduced to any kind of intellectually robust Christianity. Like I didn't take up that guy's recommendation to read any C.S. Lewis and I just didn't even know that existed. So I think I just dismissed Christianity out of hand as something that was shallow. It was delusional. It was for just all the stereotypical, you know, it was for weak people, weak minded people. It was for stupid people. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. So I think there, there was that like, seduction, I guess, by those um, existentialist, uh, kind of nihilistic writers going on at the same time. Well, that's curious, uh, especially, again, for someone in your teens to be delving into substantive um, writers like that. Uh, I wonder, when you were reading the, this existential material or these novels or, or writings, did did you believe that nihilistic worldview? And if if so, also did you embrace that kind of outlook on life? Um, did it affect your life in any way? Uh, yes, I think at the time I would have said that I did embrace that kind of philosophy about about the futility and absurdity of life, but. Looking back, I can see I had such a shallowness of experience, <laughs> life experience being only 14, 15, 16 years old. And I was very emotionally dramatic about life. And I think I would not have thought through the logical consequences of those philosophies. I just thought to me they seemed, um, you know, daring and exotic and cool, <laughs> which now it just seems so bizarre to me. But um 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I was a very brooding teenager, and I think that certainly had an effect that I was reading all those things and embracing all that kind of thinking. But I think as far as thinking through the logical consequences of there being no meaning to life, um, I think I didn't, I didn't think that far. Mm. So did, yeah, I presume that you, with this kind of outlook and I would imagine that you created whatever life that you wanted to create um, because life was nothing but, you know, this reductionistic understanding of, mm-hmm. of making your own reality. Um, I presume that probably gave you a lot of freedom, uh, but I wondered how long did you embrace this kind of philosophy or, or go along this pathway? Yeah, I think, um, gosh, for quite, for quite some time and looking back, I can see there was a lot of, uh, emotional pain over the, those years were very chaotic in my family because of everything that my sister was going through. And so I think there was probably also some of it was a little bit reactionary to, to what was happening with her. And also I felt, I felt this freedom. I had always felt like a rule follower up to that point. I always got good grades. Uh, I never did anything dangerous or risky. And so I guess I did feel liberated to try drinking, to try promiscuity, uh, to try all these things. And of course I was at that time too, listening to the, I would have been listening to the um, cultural messages of uh, that sex is really inconsequential that it really doesn't matter that it can be casually enjoyed uh and i i think i went along with that which i and and drinking to binge drinking in college um in college i really kind of crashed and burned <laughs> as far as the drinking went um i recovered a little though and i was able to finish college but i would say in, into young adulthood i was very much um embraced I guess, a kind of nihilistic worldview, even, even if I didn't necessarily follow it all the way to its, to its logical consequences or its logical outcome. During any of this time, did the issue of God ever come up? Did you ever reconsider that at all as even a possibility? Did you run into any Christians? Were there any influences like that in your world through any of this? Yeah, I remember in college, I really hit a low point. I was I was drinking a lot, and I had actually known a young man who, there was a summer in college, I think it was between my sophomore and junior year, and I had known a young man who uh, was in an illicit relationship and had gotten murdered, actually, by the man that he was involved with, and it was just such a dark dark time and I was having a mental health crisis and drinking a lot and I remember I started going to an AA meeting actually and I only lasted for gosh probably less than a week Um, but I did sitting there and listening to people these people who (laughs) you know were most of them were a generation older than me and had completely hit rock bottom in their lives and just listening to them talk about, and of course, AA is not necessarily a Christian organization, but there is, there are references to a higher power. And um, so that had, that had an effect on me for sure, even though I kind of wissed out after a little while. And I remember too, around that time, 
going to a church. I was just, there was one Sunday morning, I'm sure I was hungover and I just was so miserable and so deep in despair and, and felt like in my worldview, there was no recourse. There was no, there was no one to help. (laughs) There was no savior. There was no. And so I remember I went to a Methodist church service and I went inside and I sat down and shortly after, um, the pastor, uh, just kind of greeted everyone. Then he invited everyone to greet one another. And I remember there was a man that came up to me and, and was so warm and welcoming and shook my hand and, and, and welcomed me. And I was just filled with shame. <laughs> I was just filled with shame. Hmm. And um, I think because I knew I just felt so dirty. And even though I was listening to all these cultural messages that said, oh, this is liberation, like, you know, I, I just felt so dirty and shameful. And I actually, as soon as the greeting time was over, I just, I fled, I just ran out. And so there were moments where I look back and think, wow, if I had just surrendered to what I think God was trying to do at that point, that would have made my life so much easier. But I, I did not at that time. Mm. So you continued on. I guess uh, you said you were in young adulthood at this point and you were still, I presume, um, moving along in this this way of living and thinking and um, perhaps uh, difficulties in life and a little bit of despair. I I, I presume at at that point you would have considered, you you mentioned that, that your worldview at that time really gave you no help, no savior, no recourse. Um, so that was a situation uh, or a circumstance or moment in your life where you actually were forced in a way to look at the implications of your own nihilistic worldview, Mm -hmm. um, that there was nothing there for you or it didn't offer perhaps what you needed or what you were looking for. Um, so even though you weren't, I guess, earlier looking at the logical implications in some ways existentially, um, your existentialism kind of came to roost and to show its true self and your point of need. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, and which they inevitably do. Don't they? Yeah. (laughs) All all of our world. Yeah. Though our ways of thinking have a way of, um, of, of, uh, finding us in, in our, in our lives. So Mm -hmm. tell me then what happened next in your journey? So um, I graduated college and I was, I was, I lived with my parents for a few months and then I got a job and was out on my own. And I remember I felt, and I can't remember if there was something that triggered this. Like, I don't remember having an encounter with a Christian. Maybe it was just my own discussions with my dad. My dad was very dismayed to say the least at my atheism. And I would get into arguments, arguments with him periodically about it. And so at one point, I think I was 23, I decided, gosh, I really need to be able to rationally argue this. If this is what I believe, I need to be able to prove it. Um, And it's interesting for me, it was never even a matter of, oh, maybe I should investigate the other side. And I just dismissed that out of hand. I was like, no, I need to read atheist authors and be able to prove my worldview. And so um, I remember I read... 
Richard Dawkins. I think The Blind Watchmaker was the one I read. And a lot of the science just went over my head, but I trusted it. You know, I trusted he knew what he was talking about. And I trust I believed all his conclusions. And then someone loaned me, a, I think, Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. And that he was a little smug and that kind of got under my skin, but I I guess I agreed with everything he was saying. And then I also really liked Christopher Hitchens, who he was, of course, one of the big new atheists at the time. And I really liked him, just thought he was so clever and so, so smart. And um, so he had a book coming out around that time called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And so I remember getting that book and thinking like, this is going to be the key. Like this is, this book is going to really codify this belief system for me. And I'm going to be able to indisputably, (laughs) you know, shut down anyone that I encounter. And I remember uh, lying on my bed in my apartment, reading it. And I read about half of it. And I just had this like cold, hollow, empty feeling. And I remember, I distinctly remember throwing the book down on the floor and eventually it got like kicked under my bed. <laughs> but I just felt like mm. if this is the truth, why does it feel so bad? Like, why does it feel so empty? Why does it feel like it's siphoning all of the mystery and magic of the out of the world? Because there was this very hard certainty in his writing and in, in the new atheist writing. And it just felt like, it just made me feel so cold and bereft and and hollow and empty. And, um, that was really a cracking point for me thinking like, I I don't know if I, if I can abide in this worldview, but I still, at that point, I wasn't ready to give it up, but around that time too, I guess I was just behaving recklessly and I had, um, taken, psychedelic mushrooms before in college. And it was just, you know, a fun time. It was just kind of a party. And I had a friend uh, later on at this time that I was reading um, Christopher Hitchens. I had a friend who had some LSD and he asked me if I wanted to do it. I said, sure, why not? (laughs) And I had a really, um, and I just want to be very clear before I go into talking about this, that I do not condone drug use whatsoever, which will become clear as I keep talking. But Uh, I had a really shattering experience on LSD that made me uh, think that there was a lot more to life than I had ever realized there was. And um, it's been difficult for me to reconcile. And then I I got very deeply into psychedelic drugs after that. So it's been kind of uh, difficult. I've asked God to help me reconcile these experiences because you can on those drugs, you can have experiences that seem very profoundly revelatory and, and life-changing. And so this experience I had, um, I certainly think in time, God has used it for good because he uses all things for good um, in those who love him and are called according to his purpose, of course. But um, it just, it really shattered my materialist atheist worldview I just thought I I can't believe that anymore um but I still (laughs) I still and I I feel like I became spiritually open to anything except Jesus (laughs) like I still 
Yeah, I was open to anything. I mean, people, I had friends who, you know, and I had friends who were just complete stoners and, and would talk about dolphins being from outer space. And, and I was open to anything except Jesus. I was still so closed off to Jesus, which I look back and think that's just extraordinary how Satan can, can blind you. Um, but yeah, and I, um, I met my husband when we were both 24. So sometime after this, and I, I was very into psychedelic drugs. He was very into psychedelic drugs. Um, and we fell in love very, very fast, very hard. And we got engaged after three weeks of dating. And then we got married a month and a half after that. (laughs) So, uh, it was, it was very fast, very intense. And, um, around that time with him, I had, I would have some psychedelic experiences that seemed very transcendent and seemed very spiritual. And then I had some that were utterly, utterly terrifying and actually traumatizing. Um, but I just, I just hung on because I felt for me, this was the only way that I had ever experienced something transcendent or even something (laughs) demonic, like something that was outside of my realm of experience to that point. Um, so I was very immersed in that, in that whole world for years. And like I said, I was open to anything spiritually. I was very, very into yoga as well. I practice yoga almost every day. Uh, was very devoted to yogic philosophy, which in America, yogic philosophy, it's just kind of a mishmash of, um, oh gosh, it's just kind of a grab bag of Eastern religions. Um, but I was very, very devoted to yoga as a spiritual practice. Um, I would say at that point it was, it was my religion along with psychedelics. I'd like to pause our story for a moment to ask you a pivotal question. What are you reading now? If you're looking to be inspired by true stories of faithful Christ followers, if you'd like to grow deeper in your own walk with Christ or better understand and engage in today's world, the C.S. Lewis Institute has put together a recommended reading list just for you. I hope you'll take a look at this inspired reading list. You can find it at www.cslewisinstitute.org forward slash recommended underscore reading. I do hope you'll take a look. Now back to our story. So it sounds like that was an amazing period of your life and are extraordinary. And what I mean by that is that what I appreciate about that part of your story is that it seems to me that sometimes when those who are atheists um, encounter something supernatural or beyond the natural, they don't necessarily really a- appreciate the reality of that supernatural reality. I don't know if that sounds redundant, but but uh, it's something that's there, but it doesn't cohere with a naturalistic, materialistic worldview that says matter and physicality is all there is. Yes. But you, at least, uh, you, yeah. you were willing to, like you say, you were open to more. You were, especially after that that uh, shattering experience, that that you did realize that there was something beyond just this physicality, um, mm-hmm. beyond the the uh, what the existentialists and the atheists were saying that, yeah. that this world is all there is. Yeah. Um, so I 
in a, in a way, I applaud you for that, but but it sounded like you embraced it fully. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like really fully yeah. uh, for for several years several years because it was it was obviously giving you something beyond what you had had before. Mm-hmm. Um, like yeah. you say, it, it, it's almost as if um, that dangerous kind of life that you had chosen in your teens, then it almost accelerated in another place of your life. It was, it was exhilarating. It was exciting. It was dangerous also yeah. Yeah. Um, in your, in your young adulthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you were, you were looking, it sounds like you were looking for something. Yes. Yeah, I definitely was. I absolutely was. And I think I look back and all the, the philosophies I embraced were very much self-salvation philosophies. They were uh, enlightenment, you know, um, practices that supposedly would lead to enlightenment. Um, I remember just in the new age circles in which I ran, there were so many platitudes that would just be thrown out. Um, like people would always be saying love and light, love and light. And, and, uh, I remember there was, uh, um, the idea that we are God collectively like we are god and i am god that was a that was a big thing that i entertained for a while and i i remember one night just thinking about that and thinking like oh my gosh if we are god that means we're all alone <laughs> and it was just really it, it was really struck me and it was a really um terrifying terrifying thought like we we are all alone if there's nothing supernatural like if we if we collectively are god and there's no transcendent being like that's terrifying and so there were there were definitely times where if i actually carefully thought about what i was embracing um i feel like there were there were holes and you know there were cracks that would emerge and things that didn't add up and things that didn't make sense and i remember um I got to a point where I could not have a good trip anymore on psychedelics. I just immediately, my mind would just go to anxiety and panic and I would go spiraling downward. And I decided, I decided that the solution was to grow my own mushrooms. And I thought, Oh, if I can just put, put the right energy into them and I can, I can say the speak the right words over them and I can cultivate them lovingly. Like I will have a good trip. The problem is the source, you know, the source where I'm getting these things like, and so I remember I, I grew them and I would check on them religiously and I would whatever kind of, I don't know, like uh, Sanskrit patois, I, I would know at that point from, from my yoga classes, I would, I would speak over them. And um, so one night, my husband and I, we blended them with orange juice and, and we, we drank it. And I remember, and I had a horrible, I had a horrible time. and. Uh, just uh, just feeling like I was spiraling down into this void, and I remember saying, "Does anything have any meaning?" And my husband was my husband was he he he's very he's a very steady person, <laughs> um, and he said, "Of course, everything has meaning." But I just felt like I was afraid that nothing had meaning. Like that was my greatest fear, and I think it was so it was so devastating to me that this pathway didn't work anymore. Like the drugs didn't work anymore. Like they didn't, they didn't take me somewhere good anymore. They just kept taking me somewhere very bad. And I was really um, disillusioned and disheartened by that. 
and um, we had we had our first child, um, which was that was a difficult experience. I think I just wasn't prepared for um, learning how selfish I was <laughs> uh, with a newborn, and I had some some pretty significant postpartum depression, and so that was difficult working through. But then then we got to a place where our son was um, when he was an older infant. Uh, things just felt really, really wonderful, really steady as a family in our family life. And um, around that time, let's see, I'm trying to remember what happened first. I think when my son was 15 months old, we were not planning on having another, at least my plan was not to have another child because I just, I said, I'm not doing that again. That was so much. And of course I loved my son intensely, but I said, I, I just can't ever do that again. And I, surprise, <laughs> I got pregnant. Mm -hmm. And um, I just was so upset. My husband started smoking again. He hadn't smoked in, in a year, I think. And he's since quit again, thankfully, thank God. But uh, it was it was very stressful. And we were very hand-to-mouth. This is when we were still living in Kansas City. We were very hand-to-mouth. And I, I remember I was just so upset. Um, and I think at one point my husband even said, like, well, we can't, we can't get an abortion. And I said, Oh no, 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 no. So even though I, with my belief system, then I still was like, no, 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 I, I can't, I could never do that. Um, but I just felt despair. And, and around that same time, I think, uh, maybe a few, just a few weeks after I had learned I was pregnant, uh, one of my childhood friends who was a devout Christian, um, I should have mentioned her before. I had periodically over the years, um, so, well, since my son was born, I had had playdates with her. She lived in out in a, about 30 miles away from me, 30 minutes away from me. But periodically I would go. And I think uh, Stephen and I, my husband and I and Izzy went over there for dinner one evening. And it was interesting. She would always... I would blather about whatever new age thing I was currently into. And she would always... She's very gentle. just such a gentle person. And she would she would pause and she would, she wouldn't respond right away and she would pause. And then she would just say, well, you know, the Bible says this and, and she would just respond in such, it's such a loving way, just so gently. And looking back, I can see that that really made an impression on me. And anyway, after I discovered I was pregnant for the second time with our daughter, um, Carrie, this friend of mine, uh, her daughter, her two-year-old daughter got sick. And at first they, they couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, she was just really lethargic and had bleeding in her mouth. And then it turned out it was leukemia. And so, uh, one of her friends sent out an email, um, had organized a meal train for Carrie and her family. And so you could sign up to bring a meal. And I signed up for a date that was, um, I think a few weeks out, a few weeks out. And then I remembered a couple of days, a couple of days before I was scheduled to take her a meal, I got an email from the same woman, a friend of hers, saying, uh, Joella's service will be on such and such a day at such as you know, at this church. And I said, that service, what is she talking about? And Joella had passed away. She had lived for like three weeks uh, after she had been hospitalized. And oh, it was just so it was so heartbreaking and so devastating. And I remember, 
I look back and see and see this as really a turning point for me because I I didn't understand like here I am pregnant with a baby I don't want and then my friend who's a devout you know very devoted to this Jesus guy <laughs> is losing her child and she's such a good person like she just seemed like such a pure wonderful person to me and so we went to Joella's funeral and it, it was it was just heartbreaking <laughs> so heartbreaking and I, I was I was sobbing and my friend came up to me and she was hugging me and I almost felt like she was comforting me and and like ministering to me. And I just remember thinking, this this makes no sense. And they she and her husband mm. just had had a peace about them that just did not make any sense. It was so baffling to me. I kept thinking like if my son died, I would I mean, I would jump off a cliff. Like, how can they? How can they have this? And of course, they were grieving and mourning, but they just had this peace um, that was just befuddling to me. And um, I remember that really started me wondering. And she, um, a few months after that, she and I had emailed back and forth here and there, and she told me that a song, a hymn that had really been sustaining her and her husband was It Is Well With My Soul. And she shared with me the story of the man who wrote that, who, of course, lost his entire family at sea, uh, with the exception of his wife, I believe. Um, And I put that song on a playlist (laughs) on Spotify. and, And one day it was springtime and and my children and I were out on our front porch and I put that playlist on. And it is well with my soul came on and I really started listening to it. And it was, it's interesting because up to that point, you know, the music was just background music. I wasn't actually listening to it, but when that song came on, I feel like the Holy spirit just grabbed me (laughs) and made me listen and tears just started pouring down my face. And I realized like, I, sorry, sorry. I still get emotional about it, I, I understood what Jesus did for me, and I understood, and I, I feel like I had really um, just come to my breaking point of feeling like none of these self-salvation things work. Like, I cannot make myself any better of a person by going to yoga three times a week. I cannot make myself any better of a person by meditating. I can't I can't make it myself any better of a person. I had an icon of the goddess Kali, and, and like, I can't make myself any better of a person through any of this. And um, I just really come to a breaking point. The, ver- the verse that I always think of is uh, Paul and I think it's Romans 8. He said, oh, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. <laughs> Thanks be to Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. And I I just, and that, that night when my husband got home from work, I said, we need to throw away <laughs> all of this. We had a little Ganesh icon, which is a Hindu elephant god. We had a little Buddha icon. We just had various, and we had all kinds of New Age books and drug books, and and certainly the the icon of the goddess Kali. I was like, this this all needs to go. And he at that time had actually been really interested in Orthodox Christianity and the early church, and I was very very resistant to it. I was like, I don't I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't care. I don't I don't want anything to do with that. And so when he got home and I said that, he said, yes, you're right. This all, this all needs to go. And so we just filled up a trash bag and we talked about it. And I think neither of us fully 
understood everything. We still had a lot of questions. Um, but, oh, and well, I should say another thing that was happening at that time, it was just an intersection of so many things that God orchestrated. My husband had been going to therapy and the therapist recommended that he try this church in Kansas City called Jacob's Well, which was just down the street from us, just a few blocks down. And I had said, no, I'm not, I'm not interested. <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to a church. And so he would go by himself and um, he would take our son. And so I went a few times. I agreed finally to go with him, I think when I was eight months pregnant with our daughter. And I remember I was so resistant. I was just so, I had a, I had just had such an antipathy towards Christianity. And, um, but I just remember sobbing and we sat near the back in a pew and I just remember sobbing, um, well, during the worship uh, segment, just sobbing. And, and so all these things together, I just began to think, okay, (laughs) maybe there's a lot more to this Jesus person than I ever dreamed or imagined. Mm -hmm. So you actually did start going to church and and you became open to who this person of Jesus was. Um, What did you find out? Um, So I feel so blessed. It was a really wonderful church community and they were really (laughs) non-reactionary when it came to uh, some of the things that I would say or some of the questions that I would ask people. Um, they were just a very gentle, loving, Christ-like community. And I think it was, um, initially for me, it was definitely an emotional surrender to my need for a savior, to the person of Jesus Christ. Um, I just felt so emotionally drawn to him. And then I feel like the, the intellectual confirmation kind of came afterwards and came slowly. Um, I started reading the Bible, <laughs> first of all, which was was difficult at first. I just felt like I, I, there was a lot I didn't understand. There was, despite my having something of a childhood foundation in Christianity, I just had no knowledge at all. Like I, I didn't know who Paul was. Um, I didn't, I, I felt like I was starting over completely because I felt like the scales had fallen from my eyes. Whereas I felt like before I was just blinded. It just, nothing, nothing got in, nothing penetrated my heart or my soul. And this time it was just fascinating to read what was actually in the Bible. You know, this book that I had just dismissed out of hand as anti-intellectual and regressive my whole life to, to read what was actually in there and to read the words of Jesus and just feel, feel so pierced by them and just so fascinated by him. I mean, he's just so, he's so fascinating, endlessly fascinating. So, yeah. Just for those who are listening to understand what you mean by emotional surrender to Jesus, you spoke of these self-salvation philosophies, but somehow Mm -hmm. when you say you surrender to Jesus, I, I presume you mean that in a sense of salvation or saving. Yeah. What do you what what would that look like for someone who really doesn't understand what you mean by that? Okay, yeah, let me think about that. I think I just I realized how miserable and wretched I was. I realized that I I was desperate and I needed forgiveness and I wasn't a wonderful person and I wasn't full of love and light 
like all the new age platitudes said, I wasn't completely whole already. That was a big thing too. And in new age that you're, you're already whole and you're already complete and you just, you just need to realize it, you know, you just need to, to be enlightened. And so I think I, I surrendered to my own sinfulness and my own wretchedness. And in that, um, discovered how desperately I needed and wanted a savior and um, and and also, I think that, like I said, that point on the porch of understanding what Jesus did for me and understanding why it it had to be that way and why it was necessary, and just being so overwhelmed with uh, gratitude seems like an inadequate word <laughs> for what Jesus mm-hmm. did for us. I just feel like, but but it's the only word I can think of <laughs> at the moment. But just being overwhelmed with with gratitude and love, and like I said, just being pierced by by the idea of him being pierced for me. It was just so, the magnitude of it was so overwhelming, so overwhelming. I'd like to pause for a moment and talk with you about a new resource at the C.S. Lewis Institute. Time and again, we've all faced various difficulties. It's during those times that God desires that we humbly pray and seek his path and power In the current challenging season that is upon all of us, the C.S. Lewis Institute has a renewed commitment to prayer, and our hope is that you will join with us. We have prepared a number of resources for you, a collection of articles, videos, recommended books on prayer, all gathered in one place. You can find them at cslewisinstitute.org forward slash season dash of dash prayer. We hope you'll take a look. Now back to our story. So all of the, I guess again, just in, in very simple terms, then the, all of the, the inadequacy and the lack you felt in yourself, he Jesus took on for you, or you, yes. you know, you said he was pierced for you. I presume you mean a reference to the cross in which yes. he died so that those, all of those inadequacies and the lack of wholeness and, and the dirtiness you felt and all of that, he took all of that on himself so that, and then he gives you his forgiveness and his righteousness in exchange. Is that, yes. is that what yes. you mean by that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it, it was something coming to the end of yourself and saying, I can't, um, but you can, <laughs> the, yeah. what you, I cannot do, do this for myself, but what you've done for me is, uh, uh, is what makes me whole, I guess, and clean and forgiven and, and given life uh, yes, in exchange. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So and I feel like, Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah, even even understanding the fullness, I feel like I had a, a an emotional, um, gosh, an emotional understanding at that point of of what he did for me. But understanding the fullness of salvation and and exactly what he did for me, and that he made me completely clean. Um, and that he gave me eternal life and that, yeah, and that he clothes me with his righteousness and my life is hid with Christ in God. That's um, a verse I love. And I've been thinking a lot lately that I'm, I'm completely safe in him forever because of what he did. And just the, 
the reality of like, I think, I think at the beginning, my husband and I both kind of tried to, my husband was ahead of me at that time, you know, as far as his interest in Christianity, but we both kind of tried to come at it impersonally, you know, like this is, this is a belief, yet another belief system that we are going to sample and try out and see what works for us and see what doesn't. And I think there was also a profound moment for me of realizing like, this isn't just another in my grab bag of philosophies and religions and belief systems. Like this, this is a, this is the ground of reality. And this makes a claim on me. Like this Christianity is not subject to me. I am subject to Jesus and and what Jesus did demands a response, <laughs> you know, like I have to decide. And that was really a, pr- a profound moment for me, and humbling moment for me as well. Yes. Uh, to make the statement that, that this is the ground of all reality, that Jesus mm-hmm. is the ground for all reality, that's a pretty profound uh, philosophical statement about um, what is true mm-hmm. about what we know and what we experience in the world as well as in ourselves. Um, and that is also of, of quite an intellectual statement. So I, I'm presuming from what you're saying there that you did, you read the Bible, you understood more as the scales fell off and, and you understood the grandness of the narrative and that it mm-hmm. really is something so much bigger than you um, and that you are not God, right? Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. There is a God and it's not you, yeah. um, but uh, yeah. but that the, there is a, there's a grand narrative to reality. Um, I wonder, did you ground this understanding of uh, of that Jesus Christ and, and God are the ground of all reality? Did you get that only through reading the Bible or just as you read those, those intellectual atheists and other books? And did you read any apologetics or anything, anything that helped you form this understanding of the grandness of this worldview? Yeah, for sure. And I think... Um... I probably heard that, you know, in a sermon at some point. Um, and I, I really would tie it to the beginning of the gospel of John. Like in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God through him. All things were made. And I think there's also a verse in Colossians. That's one of my favorites. And I'm probably going to be paraphrasing here. I should just memorize it, but, um, and it's, it's, well, I'll say the clause in the middle of the sentence. He's talking about Jesus, of course. And he says, in whom all the treasures and mysteries of knowledge are hidden. And I remember that mm-hmm. like, really striking me like, wow, Jesus is it. <laughs> like that's, And um, things that were really, I'm trying to think of what was really seminal for me. Certainly re- just reading the Bible was very, very um, a big deal to me. Also, um, Timothy Keller is someone that I really love and he does, he does some apologetics. And so I think reading him and realizing like, Oh, I always thought my atheist mindset was just kind of the default mindset. Like that was just, and realizing like, Oh, I've actually been formed in such a way that this is how I think through, um, Oh, and another, um, author that I, I really love and was um, one of his books was huge for me, Leslie Newbegin. He was a missiologist and a theologian, and he was a missionary in India for many years. So he was very acquainted with Eastern ways of thinking, with Eastern religions, Eastern mis- mysticism. Um, so it was really, 
invigorating for me to read his work. And one of his books uh, called Proper Confidence was really huge for me. He just talks a lot about how every worldview is based in faith. Um, Like there is no, like uh, the scientific worldview is based in faith because it's based upon uh, this foundation that the world is knowable. It's based upon centuries of scientific exploration and assuming that we're looking at the right places and we're asking the right questions. Um, So that is very much an article of faith. And so that really helped me, um, helped me to understand like these, I don't know, ways of thinking that I had thought were just rational ways of thinking were also in fact articles of faith. Um, So Mm -hmm. yeah, that was really big for me. Right. So it sounds as if, Ashley, that you have, by, but even by the language that you're using and, and the things that you're saying, uh, uh, that you have encountered a tremendous life change associated mm-hmm. with your conversion to Jesus. Can you tell us about how your life has changed? Those, those. I mean, you've been through a lot in your life, and you went through a lot of not only difficult circumstances, but a lot of despair and lack of meaning. And, you know, that was your biggest fear, right? Mm -hmm. To have that nothing had meaning. So how would you say that those, those, um, that your life has changed, especially with regard to those big questions of meaning and purpose and truth and knowledge Mm -hmm. and those things? Oh, I mean, profoundly, you know, night and day. Um, I, I can look back and see that I would, I have hope now. I didn't have hope before. Like I said, when I was younger and I would have a crisis, there was no recourse, there was no help. Um, and I have hope now. And I know that Jesus never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He promised. (laughs) And, um, I went through a really difficult period of loss several years ago. My sister and my dad both died within eight months of each other. And, um, Mm. I look back and think, wow, like, and my sister's death was very sudden and unexpected. And I just clung to Jesus. And I, I, I remember thinking, I remember talking with my mom afterward, you know, when, um, the smoke had cleared a little from, cause of course my mom was going all through all this profound loss as well. And, um, we've, we've talked a lot about it since, but I said, can you imagine if this had happened before I was a believer? And she said, Oh, I have, I have thanked God in prayer that (laughs) it did not, you know, it did not happen that you were a believer and that you, because I, I don't know what I would have done. I don't know how I would have grappled with death. I don't know if, if I, like I said, that's why when I was young, I don't think I actually thought things through to their logical conclusion. Um, Cause I, I would have said, if asked, I would have said, Oh, death is the end. There's nothing beyond that. I don't care. You know, I would have had a very laissez-faire attitude about it, but I can't imagine losing someone I love and genuinely holding to that belief. So my faith in Jesus gave me so much hope during that time. And I felt his presence so closely and um, actually have some really beautiful testimonies from that time, but that's, (laughs) that's another story. Um, But yeah, my life has changed so profoundly. Just, I have hope. And I, I can see now too, that I, that God has enabled me to love, to truly love people, not perfectly, obviously, but, um, 
before I just had so much contempt and judgment for people just based on very shallow and petty things. I would write people off. And, and now I feel like God has given me, given me grace to, to love people and all their flawedness because I am so deeply flawed as well. And, um, yeah, there's just a spaciousness. I mean, I still, obviously I still go through difficult times, but, but hope in Christ makes all the difference in the world. It's night and day. Wow. That's really beautiful. That's really, really beautiful. Um, as we're coming to a close here and just thinking about all of those who are listening, who may have pushed away God, just like you thinking it was just not intellectually tenable, uh, for whatever reason, emotionally or intellectually, what would you say to someone who who may have found that moment of openness like you did, like mm-hmm. perhaps there's more? Um, what would you say to someone like that who might be actually looking or open? Hmm. Yeah, I would say um, listen to that. <laughs> it's really scary mm-hmm. to, step, to step into that. Um I think I had so much resistance that, and and I was, I was scared. I mean, there's, um, I think sometimes we need to have a a fearful experience of God. Like Hebrew said, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's also a very wonderful thing, but there was a, there was a Mm -hmm. fearfulness in being exposed. There was a fearfulness in the, in the nakedness that that would require. But I would say, listen to that. And I would say also examine your assumptions, because I think um, a lot of what people think are default modes of thinking or that are just uh, rational modes of thinking have in, in fact been shaped by their education, by their life circumstances. Um, so, yeah, but I would say, oh, it's so hard for it would be hard for me to just to not say, like, please, like Jesus is so wonderful. Um, like, believe me, you know, and grab someone by the lapels. I don't do that in real life, but sometimes I feel like it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. Jesus is so wonderful to give him a chance, right? Um, (laughs) give him a chance. Just, just really consider it. I, especially like you said, I've, I've spoken with a lot of people who actually, as you did, started reading the Bible for the first time and were just overwhelmed with mm-hmm. the person of Jesus that they actually found in scripture. It wasn't a caricaturing yes. of, of who they thought he was. It was, it was actually the profound love and authority and compassion and strength and um, just so many things uh, that is uh, <laughs> hard to put words on. And yes, but, uh, but actually looking into it and reading it for yourself and reading about the person of Jesus and actually seeing him for who he reveals himself to be mm. um, is worth it. Yeah. Yes. So, so at now on the other side of things, as a Christian, you're obviously passionate about your faith. Um, you obviously want other people to believe. Sometimes we as Christians, I, I'm impressed with your friend Carrie and um, how mm-hmm. she she painted an embodied picture of Christianity that was so enticing. You know, yeah. filled with peace, even at her daughter's passing, yeah. being selfless at that moment of, of you know, where she okay. should have been the one receiving. I mean, those are those are really uh, amazing ways of seeing an embodied Christianity, which oftentimes mm-hmm. people don't see or experience. Um, but I, I appreciate your your 
bringing her into your story. Uh, I wonder if if her influence on you has anything to do with what you would tell Christians in terms of how we can best best uh, demonstrate Christ and and engage with those who who really don't know how wonderful Jesus is. Yes, yeah, I absolutely think so. And like I said, she she has just such a gentle manner about her. Um, anyway, but I think just how she would not be reactionary at the crazy things I was saying. <laughs> um, she would she would just she would not be reactionary, but she would also be very firm in a in a gentle, graceful way. <laughs> she would be very firm. She would she wouldn't really um, she wouldn't you know get outraged at things I said, but she also wouldn't go along with anything that I said. Um, she would just always very gently counter it with biblical truth. Um, so yeah, I think, it, I mean, that made a huge impression on me. Obviously she was really instrumental in, in me becoming a Christian. So yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Man, we can all learn from Carrie. So thank yeah. you, Carrie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, as thank you so much, Ashley, for telling your story today. It has so many twists and turns, and really uh, in unexpected ways. I appreciate your really your transparency and your boldness. I mean, your vulnerability in the way that you actually portrayed your life in, a, in a, an extremely vulnerable way. Um, I so- it- yeah, I so deeply appreciate um, being given the chance to speak about it and to speak about Jesus and how he's changed my life. I really appreciate it. Oh, wonderful. I, I do hope that uh, many people listening to this will um, come to find out more, not only about Jesus, but about you and go to your website and, and see the beautiful art and artist that you are and, and your wonderful writings and blogs and and just learn more about your chickens. Thank you again, Ashley. Thank you so very much. Thanks for tuning into the Side B podcast to hear Ashley's story. You can find out more from Ashley on her blog, through Instagram, and her Facebook. I'll put those links in the episode notes. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me at, by email at the Side B podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoyed it, I hope you'll subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and social network, perhaps even rate it or even give me a comment. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be seeing how someone else flips the record of their life.